our study of the Shorter Catechism, looking now at question 52, the reasons annexed to the Second Commandment. <clears throat> An annexation is when something is added to something else. So you have the main substance of the commandment, then you have an added reason or set of reasons, and that's what we're going to look at. The reasons annexed to the second commandment are, first, God's sovereignty over us, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. In finishing up the second commandment, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord. Now this is God's name of dominion, his self-existence. He is, I am. He has all authority. He rules over all. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 3. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, and a great king above all gods. So the sovereignty of God, God's sovereignty over us, sove is above, and reign means to rule as a king. So God's kingship, his kingly rule is above us, is over us. And therefore, as we read here, we're to do a couple of things. We're to sing, and we're to make a joyful noise, we're to come before his presence with thanksgiving. We're to make a joyful noise unto him by means of psalms. So these are various acts of worship. And all of this is because God is a great God and he's a great king. Every other mighty one, gods, who might make some demand about how they're to be worshipped or how they're to be honored... All of those are nothing compared to the Lord. That's why he says that. He's a great king above all gods. Not only does God rule over us, but God rules over those who would pretend to rule over us. The gods, in other words. This is very important because the manner in which we're to worship God is determined by himself. He is sovereign over us. That's the point of the second commandment. Don't worship God in this way because God says, worship me in this way. Singing, joyful noise, coming into his presence, giving of thanks, singing of psalms. Those are the lawful means by which he may be worshipped, but not unlawfully, not according to the devices and desires of men, not by graven images or any other way, not appointed in his word. Thomas Vincent asks, what is the force of this first reason? He answers, the force of this first reason is because God is the great sovereign king over us and hath the sole and only authority to make laws for the way of his worship. Therefore, we ought, by virtue of our allegiance, as we are his subjects, to observe his laws and ordinances and to worship him no other way than he hath appointed in his word. Okay, now, we cannot believe that Christ is king and then worship God in ways that Christ has not commanded. That's very important. If we said God may be worshipped in any way that we choose, 
that would mean that we are the kings. We are the legislators for worship. We make laws. If we said the church tells us how God is to be worshipped, then the church has made itself king. If the suggestions of Satan tell us how to worship, then Satan is our king. So whoever tells you how to worship is your king. He is your legislator. He is your God. So the scriptures are very clear. Because God is sovereign over us, therefore only he can tell us the manner in which he's to be worshipped. He is the great God. He's the great king above all gods. And we saw that this morning or this afternoon from Habakkuk chapter 2. God said for everyone to keep something. What did he say for them to keep? As remember, let the whole world keep silence before him. God is in his holy temple. And the context there is all the arguments people make in favor of graven images or worshiping God in ways that are contrary to his command, that are outside of his authority, outside or, or against his commands, namely by images. And he takes them to task and shows the folly of their images and then tells them all, all of us, be quiet and listen to me because I'm sitting in my temple ruling and reigning over all of you. So God is the only one who has the authority to make laws but also, it's important to understand, not only is it just that God has the authority, God is the only one with the wisdom to appoint laws for his own worship. He's the only one wise enough to know, is this pleasing to God? Is this appropriate and suitable for his majesty? Is this suitable to the doctrine that he teaches? Because man can't have that kind of wisdom. God never gave the keys of the kingdom to other kings and say, you kings now rule and reign, you now make laws. That's the theory of the papacy, is that when Christ ascended up into heaven, he said to his church through Peter, I want you to make laws that bind the conscience of all the faithful. I want you to make rules and edicts. I want you to sit as kings and rule and reign over the church. That's the theory of the papacy, and therefore they believe the church can determine the manner of God's worship. That's blasphemy. That's anti-Christian because it's saying that Christ is not sovereign over us. The Pope is. Peter is. Peter calls himself a fellow elder and he specifically forbids pastors from acting as if they were kings in the church. He says they're supposed to be servants. All right. So that's the force of this first reason, the sovereignty of God and therefore his sole legislative right to determine how he's supposed to be worshipped. Second, the reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety in us. Proprius means what is one's own. So propriety means God has an ownership in us. We are his. He owns us. So there he says, Exodus 20, verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I the Lord thy God He's claiming ownership. I'm your God. And because of that, no graven images, no false worship. This is his propriety in us. Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Now we talked about this also from Zephaniah 1, 
You remember when they went up and worshipped on the housetops? That's the word for bowing down. It means to kneel down or to go on your face, even go further down. And the Greek Septuagint uses the word proskuneo, which means to behave yourself as a dog behaves toward its master. So the idea of kneeling and bowing is worship. It's a religious gesture with your body to express the superiority that you consider whatever you're bowing to, whatever you are worshiping, whatever you're kneeling before, you say, that thing is my God. Okay. So if people kneel before the bread in the Lord's table, they're saying, that bread is my God. Or if they kneel before a graven image, they say, that graven image is my God. Whatever people bow before, whatever they kneel before, that's their God. Notice here, the Bible says, let us worship and bow down before the Lord, our maker. God made us. He is our creator. He is the Lord. He's sovereign over us, and he owns us by right of creation. Then verse 7, for he is our God. He is our God. He owns us as God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So God is our maker. He has declared himself to be our God. He's declared himself to be our king. That's the idea of shepherd and the pasture, the sheep of his pasture, the people and sheep of his hand. God owns us as our creator, and then God owns us as our God. Now, those aren't the same. God created all men. That does not mean he's their God. To be the people of God means he has reconciled you to himself. The demands of his justice have been satisfied. All your sins have been taken care of, in other words. You have a divine righteousness, which we call justification in the New Testament language. So to have God as your God means that he owns you not just as creator, but as redeemer. That's what that means. As the God who's adopted you into his family. As the God who rules over you as your king. Not just as your God and creator, but as your God and redeemer. And so that's what it's saying here. God has a propriety both as creator to determine how we're to worship him, and as Savior, an extra obligation that we owe to him for redeeming us as well as creating us, only to worship and bow before him, and only to worship as he has appointed. Okay, Psalm 106, verses 19 through 21. It says, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. Thus, they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forgot God, their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt. Here we see the propriety of God. He was their glory. The one thing that they should boast in is God himself. But rather than make their boast in God, and in his great works on their behalf, it says that they forgot God, who was their savior. He had delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. He had judged all the gods of the Egyptians. He had brought them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with wonders and signs. And they said, you know, I don't think this glorious God who's done all these things for us is really worthy of exclusive honor 
in the way that he's designed, I think we should exchange that for an ox, for the image or similitude of an ox. This is degradation upon degradation. They didn't actually worship an ox that God made. They worshiped the likeness of an ox that they had made. See that? At least if you worshiped an ox, you'd be worshiping the handiwork of God, right? God made oxen. So you shouldn't worship oxen. But if you were to worship an ox, you'd at least be worshiping second degree, God, the creator of the ox. Okay, so now I'm worshiping the ox. When you worship the similitude of an ox, you're worshiping the work not of God, but of yourself. You made that ox. Man made that ox. God didn't make that ox. So that's a level of degradation. And actually, uh, Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, makes the same point. Well, at least if you could worship the, the snake itself, that would be more honorable than worshiping the image of a snake. Because at least God made the snake and it has animation. Your graven image doesn't have animation. It can't breathe. It can't move. At least a snake can move around. An ox can walk and eat grass. It can low and make noises. Your image of an ox can't do any of that. Because it's not made by God. It's made by man. But here notice. That's the, that's the shame of the people of God. Is that they're doing this exchange of their glory. For a graven image of an ox that eateth grass. God did all these things for you. And you want to make the image of an ox. How ridiculous is that? God is your savior. God is your glory. And you've abandoned him. So again, the second commandment. I am the Lord, thy God. I own you. I've saved you. I've called you. You are my people. Okay, and then third place. There on page two of your handout. The reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us his propriety in us, and the zeal he hath to his own worship. Zeal means jealousy or boiling up. Like a man boils up. If he were to see his wife taken by another man, he would boil up with jealousy and say, I want my wife back. So God says, when you're worshiping in ways that I have not appointed, it's like you're committing spiritual whoredom. And God is a jealous God. He boils up with zeal for his worship. Okay, Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. Now, a husband's jealousy goes in two ways. It goes after the wayward wife, and it goes toward the beloved wife. You see that? God's the same way. Now, it's important to understand that God's zeal for his worship is part of his nature. Do you see that? He said, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Does God ever change? No, so he is always jealous over his worship. He's always boiling up with zeal for the manner of his worship. And that's very important because there are people who claim, well, in the Old Testament, God was very concerned about how he was to be worshipped. But in the New Testament, he kind of leaves it up to us. We have to figure out 
what's the appropriate manner based off of what we think is best, based off of our feelings and study of scripture and the history of the church and the traditions of the fathers and the legislation of the pope or the legislation of the councils or this church court or that church court, those things, they make up how God's supposed to be worshipped. Is that even possible? No, that's a defection from the doctrine of God. God is jealous over his worship, plus he's just, he visits iniquity, plus he's merciful, he shows mercy to thousands. So the various attributes of God, his immutability, his justice, his mercy, his jealousy, his zeal for his worship, all those things about God are obliterated if we say, well, God doesn't care how we worship him anymore. We can just worship him under the New Testament because Jesus died on the cross. God stopped being God is what that's saying. That's atheism. That's heresy. That's Gnosticism. Somehow the cross made God into a softy who doesn't care about his law anymore. He's not just anymore. He doesn't show mercy to thousands anymore. And he's not jealous. He's not a jealous God anymore. That's what they're saying. If we were to claim that. And that is blasphemy of the highest order to make the cross change God somehow. The New Testament tells us again and again that the message of the gospel does not undo the justice of God or the righteousness of God. It actually reaffirms it. It reaffirms his justice. It reaffirms his righteousness. It reaffirms his jealousy over his worship. In fact, in Hebrews it says... If someone despised Moses' law, he died under a pile of stones. Then it says, how much more worthy of punishment do you think someone will be worthy who despises the blood of Christ? See that? So this is good and just to die under a pile of stones. It's much more just to die under a pile of divine wrath if you despise Jesus' blood. So it's not saying the old is trash and horrible and menial God back then. It's saying, no, that is true and just. So much the more so is this true and just. And then it goes on to say, because that's the case, we ought to worship God with reverence and godly fear. That's the manner in which we ought to come before God, not flippantly coming in our own notions of what's right and what's wrong and what we think will please God. No, that's not reverent. That's not godly fear. And so in the New Testament, we don't say nature is abolished. God's no longer God. He's no longer jealous. He no longer visits the iniquities. He no longer shows mercy to a thousand generations. No, that's always going to be true because God cannot change. So that's God's zeal to his own worship, always zealous for his own worship. And then Exodus 34, verses 12 through 18, an extended passage, but very important in this regard. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest, lest it be a snare in the midst of thee. Now you remember from Deuteronomy 7, we looked at how the stumbling block that God was going to take away in Zephaniah 1, that stumbling block was their idols. He was going to remove them out of the land. Josiah had done a reformation. They didn't remove all the remnants of Baal. So God says, I'm going to make a clean sweep. I'm going to get all these stumbling blocks. That's what he's talking about. You go in and worship with these people. You make a covenant with them. You pretend like lightness and light and dark can go together. That Belial and the temple of Christ can go together. No. Verse 13. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. 
For thou shalt worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice, and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go whoring after their gods. Thou shalt make thee no molten gods. The feast of unleavened bread shalt thou keep. Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread as I commanded thee in the time of the month Abib, for in the month Abib thou camest out from Egypt. So here a couple we see negatively and positively a couple very important principles. One is destroy, break their images, cut down their groves. Why? Because God's name is jealous. Again, the name of God is his attributes, his ordinances, his word, his works, his authority. The name of God tells us who God is. He says his name, his nature, who he is, is jealous. And that's what I was mentioning before. If you wanted to obliterate this doctrine that somehow God accepts graven images or he accepts worship that man determines to be right, you would have to say God has altered his nature. His name has to be changed. He's no longer jealous. He's now, ah, you know, okay, sirrah, sirrah. He's now mamby-pamby. He's now wishy-washy. He'd have to be kind of middle of the road. Oh, you like your worship that way? Okay. Oh, you like worship that way? That's fine. Whatever you guys want. I'm good with that. Is that jealous? No. That is completely indifferent. And that's how people treat the worship of God. Oh, it's a matter of indifference. You have your way. I have my way. It's no problem. Let us just agree to disagree. There's no jealous God. God says he is jealous. That's his name. And therefore, because that's the case, no covenants with them, no eating their sacrifices, no tolerating the badges and the ensigns of idolatry, no marriage with these people, no making of graven images, and only worship as he's commanded. That's what entails God being named jealous. All those things I just mentioned are right here in this passage. Okay, so when people began to take steps toward Antichrist, when they made the bishops the kings in the church rather than Christ king, then they said, oh, those graven images, those altars, and those groves, don't destroy them, no. Let's convert them. Let's turn them into Christian things. Let's take their festivals and let's give Christian names to them. Let's take their images and put a Christian name on them. They've got a female God, we'll call that Mary. They have a male God, we'll call that Jesus. We'll have the mother and the child cult. They say there's the queen of heaven. Let's say Mary's the queen of heaven. Okay, so they took, oh, there's Thor, the mighty thunder God. That's Jesus now. So they would take all of these uh, remnants and badges of idolatry and say, well, we'll Christianize them. But God says, I am jealous. My worship is only determined by me. And for you to go and to take the heathens 
and to adopt their practices, their images, their altars, their groves, and bring them in is not acceptable to God because of his nature. Not because of the time of the Old Testament, but because of the sort of God he is. He has a zeal to his own worship. His name is jealous. And therefore, he says, destroy all of their altars, break their images, cut down their groves, because if you don't, you will become a heathen just like them. Yes, Bear? It's the same thing they did with Christmas and Halloween. Yes, that's exactly right. So Christmas is the winter solstice feast where you celebrate some kind of great, amazing resurrection of the sun god, or Saturnalia, the Romans celebrated. But the idea there is, we're going to take and Christianize the pagan holidays, Yule, that the pagans in the north of Europe celebrate, we'll turn that into Yule Tide, and we'll say it's about Christmas. We'll magically transform it into this winter festival. And you would ask yourself, where does the Bible teach that we should observe Christmas? Oh, well, see, the shepherds are here, and the angels announce it. Well, that's fine. That's a historical event. Where is the institution of worship and a holy day around the birth of Christ? Did the apostles celebrate it? No. Did Jesus command people to do it? No. So it's something we came up with. Okay? It's our idea. And whether it's attached to the heathen practice of Saturnalia or not is actually irrelevant because God didn't institute it. God didn't say this is a holy season, this is a holy day, This is a holy time to celebrate these truths. He didn't say that. And consequently, it's man who invented it. It's giving the honor to the the kings of the church and saying, you kings of the church rule my conscience rather than saying Christ is the king of the church. He rules over our conscience and our worship. God is a jealous God. He has sovereignty. He owns us. And he is zealous and jealous over his worship. And therefore, we may not worship him in any other way than what he has appointed in his word. And notice, when you go and you worship in these false ways, you might say, well, I'm not going to worship their gods. Remember Aaron said when they made the golden calf, this is the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. That's what he said about the golden calf. So therefore, I can worship the true God in these means that God has not commanded in this holy day that God didn't appoint. But did God accept that argument from Aaron? No. He said, keep silence before me. I'm a great king. I sit in my holy temple. You listen. Listen to my word. And then do what I say. And do it with all your might. Do it with your heart, with your mind, with your will. Enter in with your body. Do as I've commanded you. And that's what the Lord requires of us.